Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, if you've got your Bibles or your device or however you want to look it up, would you look up 1 Timothy chapter 6? We're getting to the end of this book. We've got this week and next week we will wrap it up. And so it's been a good study. We just kind of remind you of where we've been. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy uh, we talked about the, it says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, that, that there's a sincerity and authenticity to our belief and to who we are and to what we're about. And yet in the midst of that, it says certain persons swerving from these began to offer vain discussions and drift into kind of these debates and conversations. But we saw in 1 Timothy 1, we are not here to speculate, but we are here to operate within the stewardship or the economy of God, as it says. And we are people that that have been invited into what God's already doing in this world, but we've been invited in by grace. Paul says uh, that Christ came, that this statement is trustworthy and true. Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. And so there's a natural humility about ourselves that knows we can't save ourselves, but Christ in his grace has come to save us. And so we trust him. Get to chapter two. What do we see in chapter two? It says that we are to live quiet and dignified lives, godly lives in the midst of our city, in the midst of the world in which we live. And we're to pray for all people, that all people might come to the saving knowledge of Christ. It says in chapter two, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. It's Christ's payment for us that creates an avenue or path for salvation for all people. And so we're to, to live in the midst of all people in a way that that draws them and woos them to trust Christ for themselves. And we're to pray that they, would, that they would actually trust the Lord Jesus. And you get to chapters three, four, and five, and we've been unpacking those. And those really talk about leadership within the church and the organization of the church and what it is in the priorities of the church and what it is that we're to be about. And so now we come to chapter six. And chapter six is kind of an interesting one. It's interesting when you read the commentaries on this, a lot of commentators don't know exactly what to do with it. They kind of go, well, this is kind of where Paul just throws a hodgepodge of stuff at you at the end. But I think it's really not, it's really more than that. In fact, it's interesting. Pastors seem to have a little better clue what's happening here than, than, uh, than commentators. And here's why I think that that's true. It's because Paul is not simply trying to create a moving message or argument to his book here. Paul is actually wanting to move people in the church in a direction of the mission of God. And so Paul understands what that's gonna take. And so he he understands in chapter six, what he's gonna deal with is, what are the things that keep us from seeing that mission accomplished? What are the things that set up roadblocks from from everything he talked about in 1 Timothy 1 through 5 from actually happening? And what we see here is that um, that there's, there's, there's a primary thing that shows up and it's distraction. You know what gets us, what keeps the mission of God from moving forward is not so much that we get completely derailed or disqualified, it's that we just get distracted. We get distracted by the normal stuff of life and there are those that get disqualified or completely derailed. But for most of us, I think that describes really where we live. It's, uh, it's really just the, 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 the reality that when I mean, we can be successful in life 
but we can be successful in the wrong things. We can be a great failure in the things of God, even while we succeed in life. And so I think what, uh, when I look at this passage, I think about it in terms of, uh, you know, our kids. Parents, you ever have this situation with your kids where you work really hard and you plan a meal and you've got some good grilled chicken, you've got some broccoli, you've got some rice, you've got this wonderful thing prepared and the kids sit down and they're not interested in it at all because they gorged all afternoon in popcorn and cupcakes. And so they, they've gorged themselves on this one thing, but, they didn't actually, but they're not going to actually enjoy the thing that's better for them. I think that's what Paul is going to point to here. Sometimes we get satisfied in the wrong thing. And what we find is we've climbed a ladder, but the ladder, we find in the end that that ladder was leaning up against the wrong building. And so it didn't lead us really where we want to go. And so as we begin to think about this, here's what... Uh, here's what I want us to, to look at today. We're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at just a few verses. And we're going to, uh, what I hope you will see today is that God's calling you to put your faith in Him, to walk with Him, to live for Him. And, and, and so I think there's this thing that happens in us sometimes where we just get so distracted by life that our life is filled with making a paycheck, paying our bills, accumulating more stuff. And yet there's something inside that just echoes and says, and isn't there got to be more than this to, to everything that, that our lives are about? And what I want to encourage you to do today is when that, when that little thing starts to echo for you, don't just kind of stuff it back down, but maybe listen to it and just ask the Lord, Lord, am I distracted from what you want for me? Is there something you, you want to point me towards that's going to lead me into something that's even better than what I imagined? So let's look at 1 Timothy 6. We're going to start in verse 3. Uh, it says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of, is a root of all kinds of evil. For it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Paul, in this wonderful book, begins to deal with this whole idea of distraction. And as he does, you notice he says in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, where have we heard that phrase before in our study of 1 Timothy? You go back to chapter 1, verse 3, and he says almost the identical thing. He says, do not allow anyone to teach you a different doctrine. When he's talking about charging certain persons not to teach a different doctrine, what, what's he warning us about? He's warning us against anything that would be contrary to the, to the belief of Jesus and to the life of Jesus. And so he says that if they teach anything that's contrary to the sound words of the Lord Jesus and to his teaching that leads to godliness, then we're to discard that. Um, it's interesting here when you think about this phrase, he says, teaching that accords with godliness. He actually connects our teaching, our belief, our, our faith with our action and our behavior and our attitudes that our beliefs are supposed to lead to behaviors, and he connects those three things. 
you know, my house, whenever uh, we're eating dinner and we, someone says, hey, would you pass the salt? Someone takes the salt shaker and they begin to pass it. My wife always says, hey, salt and pepper are married. You pass both of them together. You pass, good manners says you pass salt and pepper together. They always stay together. Well, what this passage is saying is that our belief and our behavior are married. They always go together that you never separate those two, that what we believe, what we trust works itself out. It accords itself to godliness. It's connected to a faithful life as well. And so if our teaching goes away from Jesus and our behavior goes away from Jesus, that means is we're not following Jesus. We're following something else. We're following a different path. And he says of those people, he says, they're puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. It's like, well, Paul, tell us what you really think, right? Like this is someone who has a big head, but he says has an empty mind. They're all hat, but no cattle, we might say in Oklahoma or Texas, right? This is someone who, uh, they've got a big, their head's like a big overinflated balloon that's, that's filled with nothingness, um, but, but looks really impressive on the outside. So what does he say about the, what are the characteristics that describe this kind of person? He likes to argue, to question, to fight over secondary things. In fact, it says he craves these things. He wants to quarrel. He, they produce all this friction in their life. And what's it like to live with someone who craves controversy? What it means is this is someone who just, they like to stir the pot. They like to argue about stuff. They like to get in and, and talk about what ought, how they think they can do something better. Uh, they like to, to, to kind of offer um, advice, but not really offer any actual help. And so this thing begins to lead them in a direction that goes in a, in a way of distraction. These are people who are distracted by discussions. It's like, hey, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. But you know, you can spend an awful lot of time and energy talking about the ministry, but not actually get the ministry done. I think that's part of what he's talking about. These are people that, that, that don't actually produce at the end of the day. Here's that phrase, he says, they, they give constant friction. What's friction? It's when one surface rubs up against another person and creates un- discomfort. They, they create heat, but they don't create movement. There's something that holds it back. And what he's saying is that, man, these kinds of things are, they're an emotional drain. They're a momentum killer in the life of a church that they shut the mojo down when people want to simply discuss and debate and argue about things that it causes a problem the life of church. It's like a a football team. And man, for half of you, I don't want to bring up football this week, but uh, so just don't, don't, you know, push, let it go. Let it go. Don't live there. Don't, don't let your worship and your life be determined by, you know, the ups and downs of 18 to 20 year old boys. Um, But, but it's like, it's like football players that they're breaking the huddle and they've got a play that they're called to execute. And the linemen want to stop and debate what the snap count is. Now the snap count matters, but it shouldn't get in the way of their focusing on the play they need to execute and what they need to do. And so there's debate about the wrong sorts of things. Here's what I'd say in 20 plus years of ministry, what I found is more times than not, the people that lend themselves to arguing over the way in which the ministry ought to be executed and debating about controversies and stirring up things are the people who don't actually produce the fruit of the ministry. And so in, in the end, when you want to push back, you begin to say, man, where, where are the people you've led to the Lord? And they're nowhere to be found. Where are the people you've discipled? Where are the men that you've trained up, that you've poured your life into? Where are the groups that you've multiplied, where you've seen the fruit of the Spirit 
birthed in the life of people and they're not to be found? Where have you served the church and provide care for those who are hurting and needy? Where have you been, been the hands and feet of Jesus, washing the feet of others? And they're hard to find because they spent too much time debating the how it ought to be done and not executing the what of what Jesus called us to do. And that's where I think Paul's pushing against us here is he's saying that in the end, these people are more distraction on the ministry than devotion to the ministry. And so Paul in verse five then raises another issue in the life of the church. And he's gonna talk about this thing. He says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, talks about another error that sometimes distracts us. That somehow in that day, there were people who connected financial wherewithal with God's presence in your life that if God was present in your life, you were gonna see financial benefit from that. You were gonna see a gain of financially or gain of money related to that. But he says that they're imagining this. They're pretending, they're putting up a falsehood. They're distracting us from the truth by setting up this false idea. In verse three, what we saw, remember it said that they live lives who are not of sound words in accordance with godliness. Sound words there, the interesting thing about that phrase is sound means healthy means words that lean to actual spiritual health is what it's talking about. It's words that you can trust to lead you in the right direction. These people have departed from that, which means they're twisting things. And so they've connected this false idea that somehow if God were on your side, you'd have plenty. And if you have plenty of stuff, then God must be on your side. Um, Now, let me just say this. That idea is not foreign in our world. In fact, my, my church planning friends in South America tell me that this is rampant in Central and South America that's taking over. My church planning friends and missionary friends in Africa tell me it's rampant in parts of Africa. This idea that somehow if you put your faith in God and you do the right things, you're gonna experience this blessing of the Lord that comes out in terms of your financial, um, your financial goodness. But you know what? It's not absent from here in America either, is it? And if you go just south of us to a church down in Houston that's really well known, you're gonna hear all kinds of this taught. But not just there, you hear it taught throughout our country and even here in our city. And so you see this kind of false idea that begins to permeate. That's why we have verses six to eight. Paul says in six to eight, or verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness doesn't necessarily lead to great gain, but godliness with contentment is a different kind of gain. What he's doing is he's just saying, let me flip the values around here. What if the value isn't God's blessing in terms of money, but value is God's blessing in terms of your contentment with whatever situation you find yourself in? Uh, Let me ask you this. Who is the strong one truly? The one whose contentment and whose life view fluctuates based on the stock market's ups and downs or the one who stands strong regardless of what level their income is set at? What scripture says is the, the second is actually the stronger of the two. Why is that? Verse seven, for we brought nothing out of the world, we can take nothing, and we can, or I'm sorry, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. To be content means I'm not spinning out of control whenever I don't have everything that I want. It means that I, I can be satisfied and find joy even when I have just enough. That's what contentment means. Let me ask you this, I got a question for you. I really hope I know the, the right, I know the answer that, the, the, to this question. If I don't, I may be in trouble here, but is there anyone naked here today? Okay, good. Uh, let, can, let, can we just commit to keep it that way? Like, let's not go a different direction. Is there anyone here who looks like they didn't have leftovers for Thanksgiving? Uh, 
No, we, we all, I think, have clothes. We all have food. What that means is God did what he promised. God's taking care of us. God has given us what he told us he would give us. And so, so as we think about what it means to have food and clothing, contentment, I think, it, it, let's talk about this idea of contentment. Contentment really means that it really has to do with more with our attitude towards money and how we use our money than how much money we have. And so whenever you look at this, uh, Philippians, Paul says in Philippians, Philippians 4, uh, Paul shares a similar type idea, but he really is sharing more of his own personal, uh, his own personal testimony here. And in Philippians 4, uh, Paul says this, down in verse 10. I rejoiced, oh, actually, I think I got the wrong verse here. Let me read it off my notes. It says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This may be the most abused verse in the Bible or one of them. Uh, it, it's not about uh, God's gonna give you the strength to win the football game. The, the context informs the way we understand this verse. And he's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying, I can be content in any circumstance at all. I can be, I can be content when I'm hungry. I can be content when I'm full. Um, any of you eat so much this week, you had a hard time being content when you're full? Like you lay down and you're just like, oh, you know, what have I done to myself? Uh, the, Paul says he learned to be content. It's interesting, I think, when you think about really what Paul's saying here. You know, this is, this is kind of my story too. I feel like through the grace of God over time, we've had a lot at times, and we've had times where we didn't have a whole lot. And we've had to learn to be content in both. You know, it's interesting, when I was, when I was in college, I remember wrestling with this idea when I was thinking about going into ministry and what life would, would be like. And I had this accountability group and we decided we were gonna make these kind of lifelong commitments. And we were gonna go and uh, kind of got this crazy idea. We were gonna jump in a pickup, drive to Mexico, bury this time capsule. We we're gonna go back and dig it up in 10 years. And we we're gonna put things in this bottle that was this time capsule that we just said, what are the things that we really wanna commit to spiritually? And these were, this was my accountability group, the guys that were kind of encouraging me spiritually. And we were wrestling with, kind of this transition of life from this 22-year-old thing to what do we wanna be when we grow up and what do we wanna become and what are our dreams and what are our spiritual commitments? And for me, one of the things, that, and we each committed to bring something meaningful to us to put in the bottle and then we'd write out these commitments and we put them in there. We're gonna go back and dig them up in 10 years and make sure that we were still on course. You know what item I put in the bottle? I put a, gold, a solid gold chain necklace that I'd worn which was cool in the 80s, at least I thought. But if I wore it now, you'd think I probably needed to be on a cruise ship with my shirt unbuttoned down to here and it'd be a little awkward. But at the time, it seemed like a big deal. And I took that necklace and I put it in the bottle. And my commitment at that time was, God, I don't wanna sell out just for money in the world. I wanna live on purpose. I, wanted, I was making these decisions about what it is I wanna do with my life. And I was looking at pre-med and pre-law and what it is I wanted to do. But I just knew that there was this kind of decision make. We've got this wonderful music playing down here. There we go. That's all good. Um, I just noticed everyone's eyes were here and I was like, well, we're going to wait. Um, but I was making this decision about what it is I want to do with my life. 
And I remember just feeling this kind of intensity of that moment saying, Lord, I want to seek you. I want to seek joy in you. I want to live on purpose for you. I don't want to simply make decisions in life based on finances. I don't want that to be the thing that drives me. And, you know, that sort of sets the course for, for, for my life. And I remember Nan and I, when we were uh, engaged, those were th- issues we wrestled with and just said, well, how is it we want to we live and what is it we want to do with these things? And we just made that as a commitment before we got married that we were going to try to live in that kind of a way, that we weren't going to let that be the thing that drove us. Now, it's interesting to make a commitment when you're 22. It's another thing to try to walk that out. And many of you know kind of our lives now, but oftentimes what I find in this is we don't know each other's stories. And what I know from talking to a lot of you is when most of our stories have looked kind of like this, that there's times when it's been easy and times when it's been hard, times when our spiritual commitments felt like, man, those things just rolled and times when our spiritual commitments felt more difficult for us. And I think maybe because it's Thanksgiving, I just was feeling reflective about kind of our journey and where we've been. And I just wanted to, I was just thinking about that this week. You know, when we first got married, uh, we were living off of 18 grand a year. We lived in a little apartment right on I-35 as you head south. And as we sat there, uh, you could hear every semi that went through. There's, you know, the sound, right? And we lived in this little 400 square foot apartment. And uh, we would drive down to seminary. If we got up before 5.45 a.m., we'd get there in 45 minutes. If we left, uh, if we left after 6 a.m., it took an hour and a half. So we would get in our, our little Honda Accord and we'd head south and Nan would sleep in the car while I drove. And then we'd get there and I'd go in the library and Nan would sleep in the car while I studied. And 10 minutes before class, I'd go get Nan and wake her up and she'd run into class and we'd go to school. And that was how we began grad school. Uh, we lived kind of month to month or week to week, month to month. We would cash our paycheck, put them in envelopes and we'd live off whatever was there. I remember one month we ran out and we had no food in the fridge. And so we looked at there, and I still remember, this may have been the worst meal I've ever eaten. But we went to the pantry, and we we're like, I guess it's canned goods. And so we figured out what canned goods could we pull out and somehow carve out a meal. Uh, I committed that day never to be a canned good vegan. Uh, that's just not the way I want to live my life. But, but we got through, and you know what? We had fun. We, we lived well, and we enjoyed our life, and we had a good time. Uh, we bounced around through several houses and uh, apartments and uh, rental houses and different things in Dallas. I remember we went to go buy our first house and there was this house we really wanted in the M streets and it was selling for $129,000 and we couldn't afford it. It was outside our budget and we didn't do it. And I'm still a little bitter about this because someone else bought it and two years later they sold it for like $300,000. And, uh, you know, so they flipped that house and made a lot of money on it but it was outside our budget, so we didn't do it. We bought a different house in the L Streets instead of the M Streets, just down a little notch, right? And it was this little two-bedroom house, and when we had fun in that house. I've got nothing but wonderful memories in that little house. When we moved in, uh, the washer and dryer was in the kitchen. And so my first honeydew project as a homeowner was I had to dig a 75-foot ditch and, lay, and run water out to the external garage so that whenever it was raining or 23 degrees or 103 degrees and we wanted to go move the laundry from the washer to the dryer, we had to go outside and walk through all that and do it. Um, the, the boys came along at that time. Um, I just remember the ups and the downs of that season. You know, we, I remember we had... Uh, like $40,000 with the grad school bills we were trying to pay and $40,000 of medical and fertility bills we were trying to pay and we were making about 30 something. And I'm not good at math, but those numbers didn't seem to work really well at that time. And we were wrestling with some of those things. Every uh, a little one bedroom uh, or two bedroom, one bath house, 
when you bring these, these two little boys that weighed about four and a half pounds and the twins are born, I brought them into that, that house. And I remember every morning I'd have to take all their stuff out of the bathtub. So I'd get in, take a shower, and every night we'd have to put all their stuff back in so we can give them a bath. And you're just wrestling with kind of the normalcy of life, but it was so much fun. And we enjoyed it and we were content in that world. I remember, uh, you know, even things that, that didn't seem like blessings at the time. And we had this the kind of narrow galley kitchen and there was this fluorescent light overhead that honestly looked like it came out of a 1970s office building somewhere. It's nothing we would have ever chosen to put in there. I didn't really like it. But there was a season where Luke just had a hard time sleeping. And we don't know if he was colicky or exactly what happened, but he would cry from 7 p.m. till 10 p.m. at night. And the thing that would calm him down would be, I would go into that, I would go into that kitchen and I would just hold him like this and kind of bounce him. And I would I just do circles. It looked like Vince Lombardi on the sidelines. And I just would do this for three hours. And that was the thing that would finally calm him down and he would go to sleep was he would sit and he'd look up at that fluorescent light and it distracted him and he would calm down. You know, it's funny the things that you remember in life. I really look back at those times. I don't remember the things we couldn't afford. I don't remember the things we didn't have. I don't remember the stressful times when when we were, you know, fought over how are we going to give our tithe this way or how are we going to pay our bills or what are we going to do that or why didn't you reimburse that thing? And those things were all a part of that season for us. But what I remember when I look back is God always provided. We didn't miss a meal. We always had clothes. And we made great memories. There was a lot of joy and contentment. Can I just encourage you, when you look at this passage, when you think about, about what Paul is calling us to do, is, man, there are ups and downs in life but God's going to take care of us. And it's not always going to be easy. There's times when it's harder than others. But when I look back and I see how God provided, and I just see the hand of God at work and all those things, it gives me confidence that he's going to work in the times ahead as well. There were also hard times. I remember our house getting broken into and coming home from work and seeing the door hanging on its hinges and stuff strewn across the driveway and walking in and just knowing that there were family things and other things that were gone forever and we couldn't get back. I remember watching Nan's grandfather's house and 90 years of family history go up in flames and it burnt and it was gone. And it told me that you better not put your hope in those things because those things are not forever. And yet you can enjoy them and you can enjoy the things you have. And you know what? In all those circumstances, we were very rich by global standards. Nowadays, I mean, you guys know us. We, we have more than we used to. We're in a different season of life than we used to. It's less stressful in a lot of ways, just being honest, to pay bills. It's less stressful to give money away now than it used to be. It's a little bit easier than it was then. But you know what? When I look at then and I look at now, we were just as happy then as we are now. We were just as content then as we are now. God's joy was, was true and present in both places, and our confidence in him did not waver, did not vary. There's a, there's a confidence that I think we can have in God when we truly trust him for these things. And it's not always easy. But I think it's ironic this weekend, when I think about this weekend of Thanksgiving, that in our country, we sort of celebrate two holidays on the last weekend in November. Have you noticed this? We do Thanksgiving on Thursday, and on Friday, we do what? Black Friday, and one is built around making you content and grateful for all that you have, and the next day is built around showing you everything you don't have and fostering your discontent so that you go and buy more. And so, uh, you know, it's funny, if I were the devil and I was thinking of, how do I disrupt people's gratitude? It's like, why don't I get them up as early as possible the very next day and have them chase after everything they don't currently own and they need? And so you can easily distract them. Now, I joke, uh, sort of, 
uh, sort of kid. There, there's not really anything wrong with Black Friday, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with you going and finding a good deal to provide for your family. That actually can be a wonderful and good thing. So I'm not really saying this is a kind of an anti-Black Friday thing. In fact, one of the things I remember about my childhood is my mom used to go find these sales back in the days when it mattered if you had a little doily on your shirt here that looked like an Izod or a polo. Like my mom would go find ways to get clothes for us that we wanted as kids because uh, she wanted to sacrifice and give those things to us, even when maybe it didn't fit the budget to buy it on a regular price. So she worked hard. I admire that. There's nothing wrong with you going on Good Friday and finding, and, and, and finding good deals to provide for your family and to sacrifice. And, and that's just life, and that's smart, and that's good. But what it really is, what I'm really talking about here is priorities. What has most of our attention is most of our attention, are we distract, so distracted by our needs and our wants and the things of, this, uh, of, of just making life work that we're no longer focused on the Lord, we're no longer great, grateful, we're no longer thankful to Him? You know, it's interesting in a symphony, in a symphony you've got kind of a, a whole lot of instruments that play and a whole lot of parts that are being played. And most of them are supposed to sort of stay in the background, but there's always one that's supposed to move forward and play as a soloist. And what happens that messes a symphony up is when those two get reversed. When someone who's supposed to be playing a background note gets everyone's attention, something's wrong, right? And when the soloist doesn't play strong enough that everyone notices, in contrast to the background, something's off. It's, it's about priorities. It's about the role that things are supposed to play. Our spiritual life is supposed to be the thing that gets the attention. Everything else in our life, our finance, our bills, everything else is support of that. It's to set up the beauty of the spiritual life, and that's where our passion is supposed to be. Now, it's interesting when you uh, think about kind of just life, what does it look like to live content with your finances, but to live hungry for the things of God? You know, one of the benefits of being a pastor is that I get a front row seat to kind of the critical moments of a lot of people's lives. You know, I've never, I've never once gone into a hospital room where someone was prepping for surgery and, and just said, how can I pray for you? And they go, man, I really just want a Tesla. Like, I just, I've never had that happen. Like, this is not the way it is. I've never gone to a funeral. I've never gone to prep a family for a funeral. And there's always that time before a funeral where you sit down and say, man, tell me about your loved one. Tell me about the one that's passed away. I've never had them go to a back room and pull out blueprints for home and pull them out and says, man, here's the home we always wish we'd have built. Like, that, that's just never happened. What do you do in those moments? You go get pictures and you pull them out and you remember the relationships you have. And you go get, you go get that, that man or that woman's Bible and you come back in and you look at the passages they had underlined and the notes they'd taken and all the things that are there in the Bible that, that, are, that were important to them because what you care about in that moment is their relationship with the Lord and their relationship with their friends and family. Those are the things that matter, not the stuff. And so and I, it's important for us to just acknowledge that you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Like, you can't take it with you. It's not worth building your life around those things. And so Paul goes on and talks about what does it look like to make our life count where it truly matters? And he talks about the dangers of a love for money. In verses nine and 10, notice the words that all, be, all kind of get to the heart of what he talks about in these verses. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving 
that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. There's a desire to be rich. There's a love for money. There's a craving for these things. Those are all heart words, aren't they? So it's not about the object that's necessarily the problem. It's this hunger, this dependence, this fixation on the object that truly becomes the problem. Materialism is not just about how much you have. Materialism ultimately is about how is about your attitude to attitude towards what you have, and how you spend what you have. That's what truly drives our materialism. And he says that they fall into a snare, into a place of ruin and destruction. You know, my favorite image of this I got in third grade, uh, sitting and listening to my teacher read a story uh, from the Red, where the red fern grows. Any of you know that book? Any of you cried? Um, you're lying if you say you didn't. Um, dudes, I know you cried when you, that, when, when you got in the, into that book. But where the red fern grows, one of the things that, that, that I, stuck with me ever since I heard that was the story of this raccoon. And he, the, the little boy created a trap for this raccoon and he created a, a trap that had a sliver just, just wide enough that that raccoon could wedge its little paw up in there. And he placed a shiny object in the middle of this trap. And whenever that raccoon kind of got its paw up in there and took hold of that shiny object and then tried to pull it back out because it was wrapped around something, it was too, his paw was too wide to get out of the, of the opening. And so he was trapped. Now it's pretty simple for that raccoon to get out, right? What do you have to do? Just let go of the thing that he wanted. And he could have easily withdrawn his trap, but he, he wouldn't do it. He would stay fixated on that one thing. He wouldn't let go. And because he wouldn't let go of the object of his desire, he became trapped and stuck. And that's what it's like spiritually for us. Paul's saying that we, be, we fall into a snare because of the desires of our heart, because of the things that are there. It's not the shiny object that traps us. It's our desire that we won't let go of those things, that we have to have those things, that we have to make it ours, that ultimately enslaves us or entraps us. And that's what Paul's getting at here. It's interesting, can I just, um, can I, can I just give, give you a, a passage or a verse that brings some balance to this? Because I think sometimes we can, you start hearing this and you can easily start living in kind of this, this fear, or this kind of tension uh, of, man, am I doing everything wrong? What's it really like? Um, we're gonna look at this again next week, but verse 17, it's interesting because Paul, if you skip just a few verses later to what we talk about, Paul's gonna talk about those who are rich. And like I said, we're gonna look at these, uh, these verses next week. But there's, there's no condemnation there for those who are wealthy. It actually just gives instruction about how they're to view their money and how they're to use their money, that they are supposed to stay humble and they are supposed to share generously with all who have need. And we're gonna look at that next week and how money can be used. And you see this throughout the scriptures that money can actually be used for good to further the kingdom of God and what its intention is for, for us. But in verse 17, he says, um, He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who, what? Richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's interesting that Paul, in the midst of this passage where he's telling us not to fall into a slave, not, not to fall into a snare about money, not to fall into a love of money, not to crave money, also reinforces, he says, but God's given you what you have to enjoy. Meaning you're not to, be, not to live in fear, you're not to live afraid to enjoy what, that which God has provided. And it's interesting too, because Jesus said, which one of you, if your kid asked you for something to eat, would not give him what he needs? Uh, Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, which one of you, if your son asked him for bread, would give him a stone? 
Or if he asked you for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And if your kid asks you for something to eat, you're not gonna play a joke on him and throw him something useless, are you? No, you're gonna feed your kid because you love your kid. And Jesus is making the point that if our heavenly father sees us the same way, if we're his children, surely we can trust him to provide good things for us. Surely we don't need to live in fear as well. And so enjoy what you have. Can I just give a little balance to this? And enjoy your life. It's Thanksgiving. You should, on Thanksgiving, you should eat your turkey and throw some extra gravy on it. Have a second piece of pie. Uh, stay up late and play games and uh, go outside and build a fire. Binge watch a TV show. Make some memories with your kids. Do good things in the life that God's given you. God gave you a life to enjoy. He created this beautiful planet for us to enjoy. He, he created families for us to find joy in them. He created the taste buds for us to enjoy those things. You go to the book of Ecclesiastes, you see over and over and over, you should enjoy your life while you can. And so there's this, there's this kind of thing that says you're here to enjoy God, to enjoy all he's given and to share this life with those around you and not to live in fear, but to trust your heavenly father who's gonna give good to you. In fact, it says, um, Jesus says, don't be anxious about what you're gonna eat or what you're gonna wear. God provides for the flowers of the field and they're dressed more beautifully than anyone else. And God provides for the birds of the air. And surely would he not provide more for you than the birds who are here today and gone tomorrow? if you're gonna live with him forever. So we can trust him. Can I tell you what might make a tremendous impact in our city? More so than us being angry about stuff and arguing about stuff and creating friction about stuff. Um, it's people who truly enjoy God and enjoy the life he's given. What would it be like if that's the thing that set us apart? If when people looked at us and went, man, those people enjoy life to the full. Jesus said, I came to give you life and give you life abundantly. And those people enjoy their God and they trust their God and they're confident in their God. And what if that just set us apart? It reminds me of the story of, uh, in the gospels where Jesus is in the boat and, and the disciples are there and storms come and everything's raging around them. And what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. And they wake him up and go, Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus just says, man, oh, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? I got this. God's got this. We're okay. What if we were the people that in the, swarm, the, the swarming uh, storms of life, we were just at peace. We were at rest and we were confident in God's provision and his goodness and we enjoyed him. And I, let me read a quote to you. I think if we lived with contentment and gratitude, um, I wonder if people might just ask us why. Like if our lives were so strong in trust and faith in God, if people might look at us and go, man, why are you not spinning out right now? Why are you not out of control? Why are you not swarming around with fear? But why are you living full of faith right now? And we might be able to, to answer them. We might be able to give them an answer for the hope that's in us. Uh, I want to read just a quote. You may have to lean in a little here, just absorb this from an article called, I Used to Be a Human Being. And he says this, the reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness into which it might enter or be reborn. There's so much noise in our world that we can't sit and listen to the still quiet voice that says, I got your back. I'm with you. I care for you. I love you. I'll provide for you. I will take care of you and deliver you all the way home. We can't hear it because there's so much noise in our world. 
It's as if the churches came to understand that the greatest threat of faith today is not hedonism, but distraction. Perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. Friends, if distraction is the thing that's leading us off course so often, what might it look like for us to learn to live in a place of quiet and confidence and faith and trust in God that we could truly rely on him? Friends, how distracted are you? And I don't know where you are this weekend. I know oftentimes as we head into the holiday season that when we're feeling up, we feel even more up. And when we feel down, we feel even lower than where we typically are during the holidays. But here's what I know. We have much to be thankful for. We have much to be grateful for. In fact, the scripture says this in 1 Thessalonians. It says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Friends, the reason we can give thanks in all circumstances ultimately is Jesus. His Father has called us home. His Spirit has granted us faith. His grace has made a way for us. His love is so sure that our future is, is certain. There is no, uh, nothing up for grabs in our lives. There's nothing up for grabs in our... Uh, he, he's dealt with our past. He's providing in the future. And He's committed to our... I mean, He's provided for our present. And he's committed to our future. We can trust him with everything. We have every reason to hope and no reason to fear. So friends, where, where, is, your, where is your fixation in this world? And for some of you, you need to take him at his word. Maybe you've been living with a big head and you've got your own ideas, but Paul says those ideas are pretty empty and you need Jesus to kind of pop that balloon and put some truth into you that you can really trust, that you can really depend on, that's more stable than your own opinions and your own ability and your own strength and your own wisdom, but that you can truly trust him. And here's the good thing, that if you simply confess that to him and you repent and turn to him and trust him, and he will give you something that's better than anything money could ever buy. And you can trust him and experience that even now. Now, for those of us who follow Christ and who trust him, and let's, let's be those who walk walk with great confidence. When Jesus saves us, he changes everything about us. He changes our priorities. He changes our goals. He changes our values. He changes our attitudes. And so we're going to look at that next week. He calls us into a battle worth fighting. Next week, we'll finish the book. We're going to look at Paul's battle cry, and he's going to say, fight the good fight. And this is what we're called to do. So friends, let's be those who push distractions aside and who live the life that's truly worth living. We pray for us. Father, we do come and just ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy. We confess that we are people of worry, that we are people of fear, that we are people of misplaced priorities, that we are people who are often distracted by the loudest things in this world. Father, that we find our hearts oftentimes clamoring and craving after things that would give us security or a sense of security. Father, would you reorient our lives even now to trust your goodness, to trust your grace, to trust your, your provision now and forevermore. Father, would you help us trust that you are more than enough to bring us joy. Father, might we say as, as Paul did, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father, make us content with what we have, but fix our eyes on you and on things of things of God. Father, we pray this through Christ and by your spirit. Amen.